today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. Our guest was born in Haiti, but uh, didn't live there very long. He lived his early years in Costa Rica before he came to the States to study music, and we're all the better for it. After writing music for short films in the theater and more, he was discovered by Neil Diamond, who brought him on as an arranger for his albums. That led to a flourishing career where he composed scores for various films and TV shows, such as Splash, Mr. Mom, The Beastmaster, Jeremy, and TV shows like uh, East of Eden. Perhaps his most famous composition uh, is for the show Moonlighting, at least in my opinion, where he wrote the hit title song and also scored the series. I became aware of him first when he was uh, working very closely with John Denver, which I thought was spectacular, his work with him. Uh, I hope everyone will please join me in welcoming Lee Holdridge to the program. Hi, Lee. I appreciate you joining us on the program today. Hello, Frank. I'm just absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you. It, oh, no, my pleasure. I tell you, I, uh, in our conversations, I've already had mentioned to you that I was a, a fan and admirer of you for many reasons, but one of which was the first time I was introduced to you is basically all your work with John Denver. So I hope to, to be able to talk about that at some point during our interview. But uh, thanks again for joining us. Oh, absolutely. John Denver was a very good friend and a big part of my life for a long time. I bet. I bet. Um, in, in reading through uh, some information about you, it sounds sounds like you had an interesting beginning beginnings in life. I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about yourself uh, growing up and you know things of that nature before you started to become a professional composer and musician. Well, very briefly, uh, my father was a world-class scientist. His, his field was tropical forestry and den- they call that dendrology. And uh, he did a lot of research. He was one of the early researchers in tropical forestry in Latin America. And he met my mother in uh, Puerto Rico. And they were married. And I was born in Haiti, where they were running a research station. Hmm. And then uh, eventually wound up in Costa Rica where he built another research station. And it was in Costa Rica I started my music lessons. I decided at 10 I wanted to study the violin. And the conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra in Costa Rica taught violin lessons, so I studied with him. And that launched me 
And he's the one that gave me the idea about being a composer. And of course, oh. that started me on the path. How fascinating. And, and the violin, I mean, it, uh, any reason why you were drawn to that particular instrument? I don't know. You know, I mean, I just suddenly the light bulb went off. Yeah. We're all carrying a violin. And I said, I want to learn that instrument. And I went from there. Um, the nice thing about playing an instrument before you become a composer is that you do sit in orchestras and you kind of feel what it's like to sit in that orchestra. So mm. when you're writing orchestral works, you kind of have that in your subconscious, that sense of playing the line, as it were. And I think yeah. it's an important part of uh, learning orchestration. Well, from what I understand, then, of course, uh, your music education got started there, but it, uh, it continued, uh, I guess, in the States, correct? Well, uh, I came to the States to, to go to high school. My father's brother and his wife lived in Boston, and they agreed to have me come there for during the school year so that I could go to junior high and high school in Boston and study music. And hmm. what I did, I took music lessons all over. And I met a gentleman by the name of Henry Lasker, who was a wonderful composer and teacher and scholar. He taught at the high school, Newton High School in, in, in outside of Boston. And I started studying privately with him. And in three years, I literally covered everything with him. Wow. Uh, when I went to uh, college later on, it was anticlimactic because they started teaching me what he had already taught me. <laughs> so wow. I went another road. I stayed studying privately. I took some private lessons with Nicholas Flagello, another great composer, and um, went off from there. You know, what can I say? Yeah. And you were more, it sounds to me like you, while you were learning an instrument, your 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 path or your your passion was actually composing as opposed to becoming a, a great musician. Is that, is that yes, safe to I, say? Right off the bat, at an early age, I realized what I wanted to do was compose. I, I set my sights on the concert hall at first. You know, the, the, the this what we call the symphonic literature, whatever you want to call it. And yeah. In high school, I wrote a lot of chamber works. I wrote for the high school symphony orchestra, full symphony orchestra. Wow. A number of works. By the time I was 18, I had already a considerable body of works that I'd composed during that period. So, oh my. A great, uh, it was a great learning period. It wasn't until I got to New York that I was then introduced to theater and film and all the other avenues. Yeah. Did, did, did any recording survive of some of this work that you did in high school by any chance? Uh, a little bit, but it's not, the quality is miserable. So. <laughs> I have scores put away in the library, but that's about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I understand. I understand. Well, let's, uh, let's get into some of the choices that you had. And sometimes our guests will choose uh, scores that they've admired by, you know, other, other composers. And yeah, you know, we're going to focus on a lot of your work today and some of the things that you're particularly proud of. And the, the first thing I thought we would explore is the suite from uh, Beastmaster. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how that project came to you and uh, why did you choose it among your favorites? Well, the Beastmaster was a surprise assignment. Um, I got a call one day from a director. It turned out to be Don Coscarelli, who directed the Beastmaster. 
and he told me he had heard my violin concerto and he absolutely loved that piece and he wanted to meet me and talk to me about his film. Now, oh. I went to see the film with him, which was, of course, the rough cut of the Beastmaster, and I was sitting there saying, what is this? How did my violin concerto suggest? <laughs> kind of like, but whatever, you know? Yeah. He heard, I think he loved the, the sort of lyricism and the, the sense that the, the concerto does kind of reach out, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And um, it turned out that they had started the score of the Beastmaster with a, another individual and they weren't happy with it. And so he threw it in my face and, and it turned out that they had booked sessions in Rome two weeks from then. So I literally had two weeks to compose and do the entire thing. It was almost, I don't know, it was close to two hours of music. And uh, I remember sitting in the spotting with the director and I said, well, now, this scene, the guy, the guy would say, uh, you know, we leave at dawn, and then five minutes later they would arrive. And I said, "What happens in those five minutes?" And the director pointed at me and said, "You." <laughs> <laughs> so I knew there was a lot of music, and two weeks is is literally impossible. So I decided I would get some orchestration help, and I contacted the uh, legendary Greg. McRitchie, who had orchestrated all the Alfred yep. Newman films from the 40s. I've heard of him, yep. And um, he worked a lot with a lot of different composers, uh, uh, including Basil Polidorus. Uh, he, had, he had scored Conan the Barbarian with Basil, so he was okay. familiar with the orchestra in Rome because we were using the same orchestra. And uh, then my friend Alf Clausen was helping me too. So what I did was I literally wrote six minutes a day. I would sketch, I would do four, five, six line sketches on the piano. And I, right. I would have three or four sketches done by the end of the day. And I would, we, I would fax them. Remember those that gadgets? They were called <laughs> machines, you know? <laughs> yeah. I would send one sketch to Greg and one sketch to Al, and they would orchestrate. And then I would orchestrate a sketch or two. So, between the three of us, we were doing six minutes a day. I finished the last cue on Sunday in Rome, the day before the first recording. I finished the oh, sequence. I know, nothing like cutting it close. But <laughs> it, it worked out, you know, <laughs> it worked out. Yeah. Something well, you anticipated one of my questions. You yes. anticipated one of my questions, too, because I always ask, what's the What's the shortest amount of time you had to put together a project? That sounds to me like Beastmaster might be up there. That, that's that's definitely at the top of the list. I think the Beauty and <laughs> the Beast TV series and uh, on CBS, uh, the the pilot. I, I think I spent two or three three days, four days to do the entire twenty minutes, twenty five minutes of score for that. Wow. But, uh, the Beastmaster certainly was. Uh, it was one of those. I remember telling my friends, I said, that, just close your eyes and write. <laughs> you didn't have time to think about anything. You just dove in and you went. And wow. I was very pleased how it came out. I mean, I was surprised that, you know, got a great theme and, and worked in the, uh, the, the director said, you know, the, the, the eagle has got to have his own theme and each animal has to have its own theme. And the princess has to have her theme. You know, he wanted all these different things. And so I tried to do all that. I think I was able to do that. And 
Oh, excellent. Well, let's uh, let's have a listen to this then. This is a this is a, a suite from the Beastmaster that I'm assuming will probably include well, a lot of those different themes. You know, are you playing the suite or are you playing the main title? Uh, the suite, I think, is what you sent to me. Correct? No, I, I added. Well, I sent you the suite, but I added just the main title out of it. Oh, okay, that's fine. If you yeah. want to play the whole suite, you would have to go to the CD, but this is just the main title. Okay. No, that's fine. Then we'll, we'll play what you had sent us. Okay. It's the main title from the film Beastmaster and it's written by our guest, Lee Holdridge.
So you go to um, you go to New York after spending some time in Boston and studying music. Uh, and I, I assume, you know, you got some other opportunities to, to write some music. What was it that attracted you to, to potentially doing a film and, and TV projects? Well, you know, when I was growing up in Costa Rica, my mother took me to the movies all the time. You know, my father, because of his scientific research work, had to travel a great deal. So she would entertain us kids and I was the oldest. So she would take me to the movies and I remember seeing films like Ben-Hur and, you know, Quo uh, Vadis and all these great films. And, and you heard these great scores. And oh, yeah. so I always said, gee, that's wonderful music. That's wonderful music. I didn't think about it then, but unbeknownst to me, it was all registering in my subconscious. When I got to New York and I was starting to do a little bit of work, I started doing some arrangements in Broadway theater shows. I, I did some ballet music for Broadway shows and, and that kind of stuff. One of my first people that I worked with was Michael Bennett, the famous choreographer. How did I know mm. to become a legend like he did? But there you <laughs> are. But uh, also I met a couple of uh, young filmmakers who were making short films and, you know, they would do films for about four minutes or five minutes and I would do some music for it. And um, I met Nick Flagello, uh, who was a wonderful composer, and I, I did study some composition with him. And ironically, I hired him years later to help me on another score that was a last minute score that had to be done in New York. But Nick was great. And he had worked with uh, Maurice Jarre on Dr. Zhivago. He had done a lot of oh, wow. for that film. And I remember saying to him, how do you feel about film music? He said, I feel wonderful. It paid for my house in Yonkers. <laughs> <laughs> that, sounds like, that sounds like what I heard Bill Conti say once, that is uh, that uh, the theme from Rocky sent his kids to college. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, but it was... It, it, I, you know, if you go back, if you listen to the uh, the whole winter sequence in Dr. Shivago's next work, and it's perfect, yeah. you know. And uh, so yeah. I uh, met David Shire. I met Willie Goldenberg in New York. And they, they were starting to do scores in Los Angeles. And I started hearing about that. And I got hired not long after that by Neil Diamond to come out and do arrangements for him here in Los Angeles and I okay. doing a lot of arrangements and he had a lot of hit records and I was involved with the big orchestra. You know, he liked big strings and all that kind of thing. And one thing led to another. The next thing I knew I was doing some scores at universal television, getting in on the ground floor, so to speak. Huh. And, um, it was at universal where you learned to write fast because they never gave you much time. You know, you, Oh, I bet. You know, was this still was this still in the day when they had like, uh, uh, yeah, you were like a contract. I mean, I don't want to say a contract player, but you were under contract for them, and you worked exclusively for Universal, pumping out this music. Is that well, kind you of weren't under contract, but you you sort of got on the good list, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I understand. In those days, you know, we're we're talking like early seventies. There weren't there weren't a lot of composers in town, so they called you constantly to work. Huh. And um, they kind of paid you by the minute, so it was very funny. So you always hope they spotted more than <laughs> bucks. But wow, that I I sort of see that as my 
graduate PhD at scoring because you learned immediately what to do. You had to go in. They didn't have, you know, we, now we get a QuickTime movie and we imported it. To, I imported it to Cubase and I had the movie at my fingertips. It's spotted, you go home and write. And send your timings, and that that was it. And if you wanted to look at a scene again, you had to drive back over to Universal, and the guy would load it into the Moviola. There's another word that a lot of uh, your your younger guys will will say. What's that? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that later. That's interesting. Well, Go that's ahead. Those big old devices they used to run film on. You know. Oh yeah. John Williams talks about scoring uh, Jaws and and and. Uh, and Star Wars, the first one, he had a moviola in his studio, you know. But I, I was a lowly TV composer, so I wasn't allowed to have a moviola at my home. <laughs> but wait, I wait, learned wait, wait. to watch the scene and literally memorize it. And then I would look at the timings and I'd say, okay, this is this, this is this, this is it. And you learn to be quick on your feet. Holy smokes. Later on, because when you start dealing with deadlines, it's not scary. You can handle it. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, I mean, so you 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 didn't have you didn't have film or video or whatever to look at consistently as you were putting this together. You'd see it once or twice, commit it to memory, and then with your notes, go back and write. Exactly, exactly. That's how they did it. Finally, wow! Towards the end of the seventies, you started to get videos, and that that was a big help because you could you yeah. could back and look at the video. But it was it was wonderful training because it it and. I love some of the things that 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 I did early on. They were they were great little adventures. You could get very creative with it, and um, I would sneak in and what you know the big guys then John Williams, Lalo Ship, Jerry Goldsmith were scoring at that time too. There on the on the right. stage, and you could kind of sneak in and watch them work. And I learned a lot from watching what they did, listening to what they did. I, huh. You could kind of peek over the score and say, aha, I see what they do. And that's what they do. That's what they do. You know, so yeah. let me tell you, it was a great period of, of learning and eye-opening. And uh, my first big film at that period was The Other Side of the Mountain Part Two. That was the first big feature that I was given and uh, went from there, you know? Wow. And do you, do you ever kind of... Uh... It sounds to me in the sequence of events that, that Neil Diamond played a, a big role in this. Do you kind of credit him with having a, 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 a contributing a lot to a turning point in your career? Well, uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel was definitely a turning point. Um, ah. You know, he got he got that assignment and he wrote the songs, but he, he, he claimed that he was going to score the picture. But of course, he, you know, he Training. So ultimately, he turned to me, and um, I'm the one that took all that stuff and made it the orchestral part of it work. Right. And, uh, I beg credit on it, but he wouldn't do that. He wanted people to think he had done the whole thing. Well, but people, people, some people, the people in the know knew, I guess, probably. Yeah, right? I think, that, I think that, no doubt. Out, you know? I got a call yeah. from a producer not long after that. He said, I want to score just like what you wrote for, for Seagull. I said, well, you mean Neil Diamond? He said, no. He said, this town is full of gossips. Everybody knows. 
Oh, I bet you've got some stories, many of which we probably can't share, but I will have to talk separately. Well, about it was that. A lot of fun. well I owe I owe that to Neil. I mean, that was very that was a great break for me, so to speak. Those hits well, and and I, and I can remember some of those songs, and and yeah. I honestly, yeah. to be honest with you, I didn't realize that you were you know backing him up with that, and I, yeah, I used to yeah. love some of the arrangements of some of his work. Yeah. So now yeah. I know why I loved it so much. You were well, really big movie that you did. I remember watching this, and it was a it was a big hit. I'm talking about the film called Splash. Yes. Um, talk to us a little bit about how that how that uh, came to you and uh, why you wanted to include that amongst your favorites today. Well, I I absolutely love that that theme. Um, I had done some television work with Ron Howard, and uh, he did contact me about working on the film, and we worked on the film together. And uh, I love the film, and uh, I created that theme for it. I was orchestra theme but then the powers of be decided that they wanted a song at the end of the movie so that's mm-hmm. adapted it for Rita Coolidge but what I did was when I did my London Symphony CD piano orchestra version to London with me and recorded that which is uh, and it's been played all over the world constantly that that piano orchestra thing i just i think it's a beautiful sort of classic approach to and by the way films like splash are timeless you know they're wonderful films yes they you watch now and they, they're still great you know yes and I, and i and i want to say i mean i don't know exactly but that was one of the earlier efforts of ron howard wasn't it i mean not the yes. first obviously but it was like in the yes. first first third of his career at least right i think he had just done night shift which i love ah right the movie but Splash was his first sort of really romantic kind of film, as it were. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's have a listen to this. It's uh, it's a beautiful theme, as Lee says. This is a uh, from the film Splash, and again, it's written by our guest, Lee Holdridge.
one of the things I find interesting about you is you've had a really a varied career is the only way I can say it. You've, I know you've written classical works. Mm-hmm. I know you've, uh, you know, you've written songs and scores. You mentioned you'd written some things for musical theater and so forth. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing that you branched out in all those different things. I'm just kind of curious. Is there, is there one uh, genre that you prefer over the others that, that you enjoy more than the others? Well, I love it all. You know, I'm, I, I, I sort of, and drawn to the whole Renaissance idea of like art should be, you know, alive and you should be able to delve into all sides. One of the things that really disturbed me when I went to New York and I went to, to try to go to different schools in New York was the kind of adamant academic attitude that existed in those places. Like, you know, I actually heard the following words, well, we see you've written a lot of music, but you haven't written enough 12-tone music. Yeah. Now, at the time, I was a scared 17-year-old, so I didn't know, very bewildered. I had a slow burn after that. I said, how dare they tell you that? How dare they say that to you? Mm. Matter. If you want to write 12-tone, write 12-tone. If you want to write lyrically, write lyrically. Henry Lasker's attitude is, Pick what you want to write in and try to do the best in that genre. Try to make that genre really beautiful or excellent or work well. And an example was he came in one day when I was studying with him. He brought in Jerome Kern's Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. He took okay. the piano and he said, we're going to talk about sonata form. And he started playing it. And he said, that's the A, the statement and then he played da, 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 the b theme and he said that's the you know the, the middle section whatever right sonata form he said then he pulled out a schubert sonatina he said this is the same form it's just a little longer you see so the, right away it was like keep your mind open open it up look at the possibilities and when I got to New York and, and those certain academic types started kind of restricting what you could write and couldn't write, um, as I thought about it over the years, I thought that is a horrible way to teach music. Huh. And fortunately, none of those guys that said that to me, their music gets played anymore. But that's another thing. <laughs> But I, yeah, but I, I mean, obviously, you know, your point, I think, I'm not even a musician, and I, but I can understand and see your point, you know, as an well, artist. What's happened, I think, towards the end of the 20th century and into the early 21st century is that composers have decided, you know, I'm just going to write what I want to write. And everybody chooses their path and pursues it. And I think it's wonderful. So you get, you get, we're all over the place. I don't like being static. I like the fact that I've written. I've written television scores. I've written operas. Opera was always an early love. I was drawn to the voice early. Huh. Um, you know, I wrote pop songs. I mean, it, it, it's just, to me, it's part of the adventure. And it's part of the fun. I said, let's see if we can do this. Let's do this. Let's get it right, you know? And well, I, I don't think you should be held back. And I, I don't think, I think teachers that hold back artists, that's not right. You should, you should yeah. just stop gaps and say go for it go go chase go see what you come up with i love it i love it yeah it because one thing that occurs to me is that film music what little i know about it and again i'm not a musician i'm I just i just love it that's all that's yeah. i'm just a fan yeah, yeah. But, but my way of understanding it it's 
it's very precise. It's almost mathematical. You've got to get it down to something like the one twenty fourth of a second or something when it begins and ends, and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm curious, is that is that restrictive in some ways when you're writing for film versus, I don't know, writing a classical piece that you know isn't being timed and you can kind of let your creativity go wherever you want it to? No, no, it's a challenge. It's like, can I say it in that, you know, okay, that many words? You know, I need to be able to say it. Boom. I have 12 that makes sense. to make this statement. I'll make the statement. And the, the cleverness is figuring out how you say it in that time period. Now, over the years, scores have become freer. You know, composers are less tied to the timings, but it's still mm. about delivering some kind of subtext or subconscious text or something about the film. You know, it's, it's, it's all about... You're you're part of the you're one of the dramatists of the film. You know you're telling your story along with the story they're telling, and however right. you approach that, however you do that is whatever works. And you know you see film scores are all over the place now. You know it's very hard to some some film scores are really eclectic, and then you watch a film like No Country for Old Men. You know the, uh, uh, where there's no music. <laughs> <laughs> you're scared beyond belief. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it, know. it's bizarre to watch without any music. Yeah. Yeah. That, that film had no music. It was just that the silence of it scared the daylights out of you, you know, <laughs> but, but music is a very powerful, powerful tool, uh, you know, and uh, because it reacts, it, it doesn't, it plays a lot on your subconscious yeah, you're not yeah. always aware of it, but it's doing something to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've had the opportunity, and I know you have, obviously, many times over, to to see a movie without a music track, and it just most of the time falls flat. Right. It just falls flat. I mean, it's right. It's not the it's not the mistake. It's not the director's fault or the actors. They're all doing fine, but there's yeah. just yeah. I, I don't know if yeah. it's because of an expectation or does it really truly need that at that added piece and i and i and i remember what you just said too reminded me of what john barry used to start calling himself they would say well you're a great film composer and he'd say no 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 i'm not a film composer i'm a musical dramatist and that kind of goes yes, to your yes, point about, exactly. about you know what i'm saying yeah yeah exactly i think i think that's that's a very key element of it uh you sometimes you just provide atmosphere it's not even a question yeah. about themes or anything it's just you 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 supply a vibe or a feeling or a mood or something you know it has nothing to do with anything you know? so yeah. and many times uh, it was interesting with directors wanted you to counterpoint what they were doing they wanted you to play against it you know go somewhere mm -hmm. else but you're seeing right. one you're hearing another that that's always a great device you know <laughs> now if I understand correctly, let's see. Did you uh, you worked on a film called Tuskegee Airmen, correct? Yeah, the Tuskegee Airmen was a wonderful HBO film. Um, I've always been a great fan of flying. Anyway, I've been always very interested in it, and I loved working for the director uh, Robert Markowitz, uh, who directed that film. That was one of the few times Rough Cut had no temp music. He didn't believe in temp music because he felt wow. restricted the composer. And so you would watch the film with him literally blank. We would, he would, he had very careful 
we thought out thoughts about music, where it should go and what it should do. And then you would write a score. And the first notes that you would hear were the notes you had composed for the film. And that was always very exciting. And that, that is highly unusual, isn't it? That they wouldn't temp track at first. Very unusual. Very unusual. He's one of the few people that did that. Uh, uh, Frank, I'll tell you, I could go to a feature film nowadays or like a a TV miniseries or something like that. And I know what they tempt the movie with because I hear the (laughs) computer struggling because they told him, oh, we want music just like that. And he's trying to write a sideways version of a certain cue. And you said, oh, they tempt that with this or they tempt that with that. Because I think yeah. girls are sweating it out, trying to trying to avoid being sued, but at the same time yeah. copying the music. And, and I've done it too. You know, I've been in that position where the director says, "No, I want it just like this. I don't want it like that. I want it like this." And he points you to the temp track, and you're like, "I don't. You know, I hope I have a good lawyer." <laughs> <laughs> well, let's. Uh... Let's uh, let's listen to this. Uh, I, I believe you had uh, passed along a cue to me from T- Tuskegee Airmen. I, I believe the cue is called Failures. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. I, I I love that score. I love that score top to bottom. But this particular one is a great moment where this particular airman, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, who's the main character in the movie, who, by the way, is a compilation of real people. Marco hmm. made sure that he got all the accurate stories and when he created this character he took some of the true stories that happened and compiled them into this character but when he's given the chance to fly after there's an accident and then he's feeling very disturbed but then the the instructor gives him the chance to fly his first solo and i just love the feeling of that okay well let's have a listen for ourselves this is uh, from the film tuskegee airman now the cue is called Failures, and it's written again by our guest. Failures Lee. and First Solo, yes. Oh, okay. Failures and First Solo, and, uh, and written by our guest, Lee Holdridge.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, uh, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask uh, some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com. You've kind of alluded to it a couple of times, so I guess I'll go ahead and ask. Um, I'd be curious to your thoughts about how film scoring has changed over the past 20 or 30 years, because I have noticed maybe from certainly from the year 2000 ish or maybe even in the 90s that things really started to change. And I'm I'm curious what your thoughts on it. Uh, how has it changed and has it been for the better or for the worse? Well, it's a continually evolving art form. It's not static. And Filmmakers change the stories, they change the approaches, they change the way they make the film. So, of course, the music's going to change. Um, as I said, uh, there's been less of scoring to the moment and more of maybe scoring to a broader sense of, of, of feeling or something like that. So scores are less sort of time to the picture unless you're John Williams and scoring Star Wars. But that's, you know, that's a different genre. Um, yeah. And of course, a lot of directors don't want big themes. They don't want themes anymore. Uh, I have mixed feelings about that. I think there are times when I would love to hear a theme, and there are times when, no, you, it shouldn't be a thematic score. It should be completely uh, kind of feel like an aleatoric score or, 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 you know, an ambient score rather than a thematic score. But then there are times when man, that theme just grabs you and it's emotional. And recently there have been a few films where I walked out saying, too bad it didn't have a theme. It would have been great for that film to have <laughs> a great theme. But they missed the ball on it. Then you walk out of another film where it's all done with kind of what I called, it's more of a, a sound effects theme, a score, if you um, and that, I think I know what you mean. Score. It's a different kind of score when it's more of sound effects, more of synthesized colors, you know, uh, mm -hmm. 
that kind of stuff. And there's some been some marvelous scores done that way recently that really are evocative and really grab you. Well, as my listeners know, uh, my, my biggest, I, I shouldn't say complaint, but the thing that kind of maybe it bothers me or I wish it would, it could change. It seems to me more recently that you, you almost get more wall to wall music. I mean, I used to, as important as music is, and I think you and I agree on that, and it truly yeah. is. Yeah. There are times when it should be no music. You know, l- let the characters carry the emotion, or, or, or you know, during a fight scene, you don't need this, all this music necessarily. The fight scene is is dramatic enough without music, and I'm, I'm just kind of concerned that it seems like it's almost wall to wall music now days. Well, I think that yes, I agree. It, it's a lot of that's insecurity. I mean, obviously, they don't feel confident enough in the film. They feel that we've got to put off, pull out all the stops. You know, we've got we got to make sure that everything's covered. And of course, score is one of those things that covers the gaps, as it were. Um, <laughs> sometimes you'd go into a spotting session, and the director would say, "Now you got to help the scene." You know, and you <laughs> right. say, "Okay, let's rewrite the script. <laughs> let's re <laughs> let's cast it differently. That'll help the scene." But you don't say that, you know, he's looking to you to now supply something that's missing from this scene. And hopefully as a composer, you can supply it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I've, I've seen films almost, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would only use the word as strong as saved, but certainly films have been enhanced and made better by the score itself. I mean, they wouldn't have been that great if it wasn't for the score kind of helping to elevate everything about it. Does that make sense? That does make sense. That happens a lot, but a great film should be able to be stand on its own and uh, you should recognize it when you see it. And then the score should only be a wonderful addition or part of that whole overall success. And that happens from time to time. Um, Certainly I was in the theater, the day after Star Wars opened, and when that spaceship came over my head, that music hit, I was, you know, I went off the charts, <laughs> you know. You were hooked. <laughs> there are moments like that you just say, okay, all right, Mr. Williams, I'm yours, go for it, you know. And, and yeah. it was just, it's just very exciting and very thrilling. And as you know, that became iconic. Same thing with Jaws. I, I used to say to people, what are you seeing on film? You're just seeing the bottom of the ocean, a lot of sand. I mean, you can watch that in a Jacques Cousteau documentary. <laughs> it's the music that suddenly puts fear in your head. It's the unknown. And and it scares the daylights out of you. And that, that was one of those marvelous moments of scoring where it's all in your subconscious. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, you had the pleasure of doing a, mom, a, a film that was a favorite of mine called Mr. Mom. And in fact, I think we, we might play a couple of cues from this back to back. Tell us about how, how, you, how that project came to you and, uh, and your uh, affinity for these two cues here that we're going to play. Well, Mr. Mom is a gem of a movie. And I'm telling you, you can order it today and watch it today. And it's absolutely, it fits right into our world today. <laughs> pages. It was John Hughes' I think first full script that he produced for a film and Aaron Spelling was a producer and I'd worked for him before. So I was brought in to do the score and it was just a a blast working on that. I loved Michael Keaton uh, in it. I thought he was, he was 
it was a perfect combination of not overstating, but just enough where you got the comedy and everything. But an interesting thing happened with that film. They, we finished the film, they went out and previewed it, and it fell flat on its face. Huh. And they were sitting around trying to figure out what was wrong. And they went out and hired an old-time picture editor from MGM that had done comedies in the past, one of these grand old veterans. He recut the entire picture, recut the timing, reset the timing, and that all of a sudden it just sparkled. And that's the film you see today. And I said, see, don't ever don't don't throw away those old timers. They know a lot, they know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I how fascinating. I had to rescore the picture because all the timings were different. So I'm sure. I could do literally like a second score of you know, of using the same thematic material. But sure. the score was playful and did all kinds of crazy little things, and and we had we had a good time with it. And um, I'll tell you a funny story. Your listeners might enjoy this. Uh, there was Please. a scene in it where the director, uh, the Michael Keaton character, fixes his wife dinner, and he wanted a romantic record playing on the record player when she's he's waiting for her to come home for dinner, and he wanted Debussy's Claire de Lune playing on the record player. Well, it turns out that the when they contacted the attorney in France who handles the estate of Claude Debussy uh, to get the rights, he would not give them the rights because he happens to also be Maurice Ravel's <laughs> attorney handling the Maurice Ravel estate. And he was still angry over what they had done to the Bolero in town. <laughs> so he would not grant them the rights. So the director was very depressed. And I said, don't worry about it. I said, there's an old trick I learned in school. I'll write the theme of Mr. Mom, but I'll put it, I'll arrange it like it's Debussy. And so what you hear of that is actually my theme, but it sounds like Claire de Lune. And he, I love it. Oh, that's great. That is so a great you, story. you avoid the lawsuit because you're not using Debussy's melody. You're using your own melody, but you're just right. orchestrating it in that genre, you know? So it's a wonderful old compositional trick, and it, and it worked. Yeah, it, it worked. worked. Yeah. Well, let's uh, uh, yeah. Let's go ahead and have a, have a listen to this. this uh, we're going to play back to back two cues from the film Mr. Mom. One's called Crazy Days, and the next one's called More Crazy Days. Well, that everybody uh, remembers the wonderful scene where Michael Keaton uh, decides to, to to organize the laundry and everything for the kids, and he's marching them around like a little army. And he has this encounter with the with the with washing machine, which they call Jaws. Uh, with the vacuum cleaner is called Jaws, but the washing machine winds up exploding in his face because <laughs> put everything in it. So, but anyway, it's a delightful. Uh, uh, the the director wanted a little bit of a like a march of the toys kind of thing feeling is what he what he described it as. Okay, well, yeah, let's have a listen again from the film, Mr. Mom. And again, obviously, written by our guest here, Mr. Lee Holdridge.
I'm curious, did um, you, you've, you've mentioned some names of, uh, of very well-known uh, Hollywood composers. Um, are there any in particular that, that you feel were uh, big influencers on, on you and, uh, you know, maybe how you write or what your style was or anything like that? Well, uh, I certainly admired all the greats, you know, Korngold, uh, Waxman, Newman, uh, uh, Steiner, you know. The, the, uh, sure. One of my favorite scores, Best Years of Our Lives, you know that, you know that film. I mean, it's a very beautiful film. And mm-hmm. before, that film is an amazing, it's, it's the other character in the film. And it really, really, really... Uh, says a lot about that film. I, I was, I remember really being moved a lot by the way that film is scored and approached. It's worth looking at again if you're a student of film scoring to see how e- evocative that score is and how much it reaches you emotionally. Uh, then you get you get into more contemporary stuff. I mean, you know, I really did like uh, when they started doing kind of more eclectic things, you know? Of course, I love the John Williams stuff. Jerry Goldsmith was unbelievable in his versatility for me. I could, mm. never, I could never imagine a composer that did more different things than he did. And uh, I thought Planet of the Apes was one of his most... created so much ambience without synthesizers, just by, you know, plucking the inside of pianos and detuning pianos and doing crazy things like that. And it was, it was fantastic. It was. He came up with crazy ideas a lot of times about how to make these sounds that he was looking yeah. for. Yes, yes. And I think that that led to a lot of creativity and a lot of wonderful things. And uh, I was always with my jaw hanging down at what some of these guys did, you know, and I said, oh, gosh, I hope I get to do something like that, you know, but it's just... <laughs> goes on the list goes on you know i i I love thomas newman i think his scores are very powerful very 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 struck by what he does um very un un uh unrecognized by the community but man his stuff is wonderful and and more more recent more recent stuff that he's done yeah i i I was a big fan of i I loved american beauty and uh Yes. What was it? Scent yes. of a Woman, which kind of had similarities to them in their sounds, but I thought yeah. those were really inventive and creative, and I loved those. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Shawshank Redemption was just... Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah. Well, we're coming to uh, one of my favorites of yours, and I can remember, I think the first time I saw the credit show up, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, my wife and I were big fans of a TV show, I think, well, let me guess. I think, yeah, I think it was in the eighties, uh, called moonlighting. Oh, and, yeah. uh, yeah. And it, uh, and it had a fabulous theme song that, uh, you know, was very short on for the TV show as they always are. But, uh, fortunately those of us that liked the song, it was released as a single and I think it did very well. Uh, I was going to, going to play that next. Tell us a little bit about how that project came to you. Well, that was one of another one of those last minute hanging on a cliff type projects. Uh, yeah. I got called in to meet Glenn Caron, who was the creator of that series, and right. he gave a script to read. I read the script. I said, oh, this is a marvelous script, but it's so sophisticated. Will this go on TV? I don't know. You know what I mean? <laughs> but um, when I went in to see him, they were going to start shooting in about 
three or four days or something like that. And he hadn't cast his lead yet. He had Sybil Shepherd, but he hadn't cast the male lead yet. Oh, wow. He was a very funny guy. I walked into his office and said, can you act? <laughs> no. But anyway, so if not long after that, uh, this guy walked into their one of their open calls and turned out to be Bruce Willis. You know what I mean? So who knew that was all coming down the pike? But yeah. they had him read with Sybil Shepherd, and they saw a spark. And the rest, as they say, is history. It's a terrific show. At the time, Glenn Karen had a decent budget. He said, look, I've got a good budget. I want you to write a theme for this. He said, write five themes. I'll pay for the session, and I'll pick the one I like the best. So I went home and wrote five themes. Wow. Four, and I couldn't think of the fifth one, and I was getting crazy. And I was going nuts, and I was going nuts. And I said, I haven't come up with that fifth theme yet. And uh, the session was the next day. You know, we now, I was now at the edge and I started, I was trying to think about it. And I I realized that the director had mentioned that one of his favorite pop singers was Al Jarreau. And I thought, well, maybe I'll write something kind of in that style, you know, and that's where that theme came from. It it as an instrumental and he loved it. He immediately picked that one. He said, that's the one. I like that. He said, let's turn it into a song. He said, I know a couple of lyricists in New York. I said, well, before you do that, I have a crazy idea. I said, why don't I chase Al Jarreau since he's one of your favorite singers? And he was like ecstatic. Well, <laughs> I, I did chase Al Jarreau. My agent and I went after him. And Al Jarreau was touring all over the world. He didn't have time. He said, yeah, Al, listen to this song and write a lyric for it. Nah, yeah, I'm very busy. I'm very busy. I'll, I, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. We kept chasing him, chasing him. Three months later, he finally wrote a lyric to it, and we recorded it a week before the sh- series went on the air. Whoa! <laughs> You're now, kidding uh, me. I've never heard of a tight time frame like I'll that. Talk before. about tightness. Now, we did do a long three-minute version. If you look at the pilot at the end credit, they play the entire three-minute version. Oh, okay. And that's what kind of gave them the idea of doing a single and as you know it did very well it was a big hit in england and europe france places and hit here and all over the world is still performed constantly and that, oh, that that version that he did i mean al walked into the studio we recorded it done wow wow that makes me want to play it more than it uh let's have a listen to this it's very fresh and yeah, vibrant. It, yeah, it's just it's a great song. It's a, something to be uh, be proud of. This will be the. Uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I said thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh no, no, very much. I mean, I you know, I'm, sounds kind of corny, but I'm actually getting goosebumps just thinking about it. It's, I I, I love this song, so it'll be a lot of fun to play. This is the uh, the main theme from uh, the TV series on ABC called uh, Moonlighting. Uh, it's sung by An- Al Jarrell and uh, who did the r- lyrics as well, I guess. And the music yeah, is by our. And the music is by our guest, Lee Holdridge. Let's have a listen.
mentioned it earlier uh, did so I, I i thought every composer had their own moviola at home but i guess that's not true is it well uh in, in the days the early days like in, in the early 70s if you were john williams you did <laughs> okay i had to get in the car and drive over to the studio and have the guy play it for me again you know but uh uh you know like I said, video came not long after that, so that solved the problem. Well, I mean, now that the and I again, I don't appreciate it probably as much as I would like to because I don't, I don't know music that well. But the technology has gotten wild, hasn't it? I mean, it, it, what's a what you can do in your home studio right now is just it's insane, isn't it? Yeah, it's really incredible. You know, I used to have walls and mountains of keyboards all around me. I have one keyboard now because everything is on the computers, it's all software, it's all you know driven by menus that you pull down and you, you assign this and you assign that. I have a whole symphony orchestra at my fingertips, but I don't, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't have to have all that stuff in the room. I mean, there are some guys doing scores on laptops now, but I like having the, uh, the PC powers. You know, I have a, a, a I use Cubase, which is, I think, a marvelous program, and I have a I have it on an iMac, one of the newer, more powerful ones. But I gotta tell you, it's like the cockpit of an airplane. You know, it's all right, tight around you. It's right there. It's very cozy. Huh. I can do the entire score. I've done my operas on this. Huh. You know everything. 
and you can do anything you want on your computer. And then you export it out into score mode, which I do. I do a full score and I put in Boeing's and everything. And then I send it to the copyists and they translate it into Sibelius or Finale. So it looks fancy and clean. Although yeah. on some tighter budgets, we've just used my direct scores from Cubase and they're fine, you know. Uh, they might not look as pretty as Finale or Sibelius, but they do they do the job. But should mean oh. it's 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 fantastic what's happened. I mean, it's completely taken away all the clutter and it's made it very compact. Should um I'm yeah, it's a hard hard question to ask, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Should musicians be worried? Are they being replaced by electronics? Uh that's always been a worry, but you know what? I don't think it's going to happen because now I've even done MIDI scores uh, for television where you wind up putting live musicians on top, you know, to play solos and things. Right. You just cannot beat the human touch. You just cannot beat the human touch. And I agree, yeah. There are scores where you it's purely electronic. No, there's no live musicians. You know, you, it's all samples and midis and composites of, of different sounds and everything. That's, that's one thing. But when it comes to that beautiful cello solo or that felt oboe solo or just a live, a guy playing a live piano, you just can't beat it. You just cannot beat it. Yeah. There's something about it. The human touch is very powerful and then talk about the human voice i mean i you know listen i hear a lot of incredible samples of voice and i know that nowadays pop singers don't really sound like they sound because there's so much auto-tune and so much going on with it but um there's nothing like a live human voice out all the stuff it's just it'll get to you emotionally every single time i don't think it's going to go away i mean yeah it's all going to work together the point of it is it's all part of that same big universe that we now have at our fingertips to create scores and music and whatever with well i guess for directors it's really nice because rather than having to pay for a full scoring session or get a you know three or five people to put together some kind of a a demo of what it is that you've written. You can actually hear, here, Mr. Director, this is what it's going to basically going to sound like when it's with a full orchestra. Oh yeah. And they absolutely. Can really make, absolutely. So I can see the advantage of that. I have, I have templates in my computer. I have full symphony orchestra, full symphony orchestra and choir, uh, a chamber orchestra, string quartet, I have everything in there. I have all these templates that I draw out when I, when I'm going to create something. And then I use that, those sounds and they're constantly new, uh, samples and, 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 and song that are, even, that sound even better than the last one. And so you replace that. Uh, wow. it's really something, it's really great, but I've done, I've done some recent, uh, television movies where we do a string sample, but then we put, two or three live players on top of the samples and mix them in. And it just adds something to the whole thing. I got to tell you. Okay. Yeah. That's fascinating to hear. And it, and I'm glad to hear that too, because I don't, I would like to think that machines aren't going to replace. You know, people, people still get that. You walk in and you hear an orchestra. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, you go to a concert or something, you just can't beat it. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, there's some kind of another universe that you go into when that happens. And yeah, hopefully we'll get live concerts back here sometime yeah. soon. Oh gosh, I hope so. I feel badly for the players now. I mean, where? Oh, no kidding. But I've had directors say to me, I say to them, uh, uh, you know, we could do a remote on this or we can do, they say, no, no, I want to be there with the orchestra. I love it. Yeah, I bet that's a special feeling. Stand in front of the orchestra and feel the whole thing, you know. And what amazes me, and I, you know, I, I, I've got to move along with the next cue, but I have to say this one thing that always amazed me as a, as an admirer, but not a musician, but just from what I understand, the the musicians are so good in L.A. and and also New York and London that basically here's the sheet music. Yeah. You may you may have one run through and that's it, and then boom, you record it live and it's done. Oh yeah. That's how good they are. Oh yeah, absolutely. The sight reading is unbelievable. And that just amazes me. It's not just uh, L.A., New York, London anymore. It's become more and more of a worldwide thing. Uh, wow, shows are all around the world have gotten increasingly better, and uh, it, it's actually very exciting. And I've recorded in some crazy places, but <laughs> it's always an adventure and it's always fun. But you know, it's funny. What's that one universal language that everybody understands, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, indeed, that's correct. The um, you had the privilege of scoring a a, a very ambitious uh, TV miniseries called uh, East of Eden. I think from my notes here, it was a uh, was well, I don't know eight hour uh, yeah. eight hours, yeah. I guess, yeah. like spread over several nights. Uh, we were going to play the main theme here. Tell us a little bit about the, about that score. Well, that was, you know, I of course I had read the book in high school, so I love the book. Steinbeck fan, but um, when they and I had seen the East of Eden movie that was done what back some years ago, and but but it's just a few chapters of the book that that movie. When they huh. they were doing a miniseries and they were doing the whole book. That was that sounded exciting to me because it's a it's three generations in that in that movie in that novel, so um, the director of that uh, was very succinct when when he came to me. He said, "Listen, there are two themes in this movie. There's the the love theme and the hate theme." <laughs> he said, <laughs> "Each other. That's basically what it's about." He said, "You take it from there." So. Um, <laughs> There, there is that moment when they talk about going to California, and that's when the, that that East of Eden theme came to me. The idea of a hopeful place, a place of hope, a place of future, you know, the dream. It's kind of that American dream, so to speak. And that theme came to me as that. And uh, it's it's one of my most perennially played themes. Uh, it's been used you name it, it's been used. I mean, David Copperfield used it in one of his magic shows. You know what I'm saying? Oh, wow. So it's been all over the place. That, um, so I'm I'm very pleased with that. It, just, it was just one of those wonderful things. I love the miniseries. Jane Seymour won a, I think she won a, 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 an Emmy. An Emmy? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I do remember her being in it, yeah. Again, it was about three and a half hours of music in that, but it was very exciting. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's have a listen to this. This is the main theme from this miniseries. Again, the miniseries is called East of Eden, and it's written by our guest, Lee Holdridge.
Lee, I'm curious, is there, uh, is there anything in the pipeline for you these days? Or are you, are you semi-retired? Are you, you oh, know, no, no, full no. speed ahead? I have, uh, as you know, I've written, I wrote my first full-length opera that was premiered by the LA Opera in 2013. I've written another one since then, which the premiere has been delayed due to what's going on in our country right now, or worldwide right, right now. And um, as you know, all the film projects have been put off. I have uh, two film projects I'm supposed to do, but they, they moved them to next year. So what I've done, I've taken this time to work on a number of concert pieces. I have a new concertina for guitar and orchestra that I've completed. And I have a string work that I've completed. I've several solo piano pieces. I've never really written solo piano pieces, so I wanted to do that. And I've done that. Huh. Um, I've spent some time with my librarian going back to the library and tidying up some of the things that I've done that were kind of a mess in the library. We've got them organized a little bit. And um, I have another, another opera up my sleeve that I want to work on. I'm going to try to, once we can sort of, we're we're let out again, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, have plans to 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 put that into motion, and uh, so there's a lot of lot of stuff sort of coming down the pike, as it were. That's excellent. Yeah, you have a lot of things in the pipeline, and yeah. I'm hoping that we can, uh, you know, possibly hear some of these things, the operas and the classical pieces, yeah. at some yeah. point. Uh, yeah. Maybe stay in touch with me and let me know when those get released. Uh, okay. Okay. I was uh, I had talked with. Uh, one of the first shows we ever did was with uh, composer George Clinton. I don't know if you know yes. George or oh, not. Yeah. Sure. And uh, he, he had done a neat little concerto as well that we were promoting and, uh, and uh, got some people, I think, to listen to that. And it was, yeah. it was a beautiful piece of work. It was really neat. So yeah, yeah please stay in touch with us on well, that. And I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you're taking advantage of the, of the downtime. Yes. No, no, there's no downtime. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's been actually a very creative period. Um, uh, there's a colleague, composer colleague, when we told him, I said, you know, we're going to be required to lockdown. We're going to have to stay home and work at home and not see anybody. And he said, so what's different? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what composers do. You know, you work in your room. Standard operating procedure. Yeah. <laughs> Until you oh, actually record the piece with some musicians, then you see people. But it was well, a very funny idea. But that's that's kind of what we do. We sit in our room and we do yeah. these things, you know. Yeah. Well, Lee, I can't even begin to tell you how much I have thoroughly enjoyed our chat, and uh, and how fascinating I have found your career and some of the work that you've done and the stories. Uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's always fun to talk about these things, Frank. I appreciate it very much. Oh, my, believe me, our pleasure, and I'm sure that our audience is going to really be delighted in getting a chance to hear this for themselves as well. That's uh, that's going to wrap it up for us today. Let me remind you, too, that uh, What's the Score? We have a Facebook page where you can stay in touch with us. The Patreon uh, program that I told you about, uh, continue to look into that. If you can support us, we'd really be grateful for that. Uh, and we're going to continue to come out with more shows. And uh, we've got some great guests lined up here in the future, so I hope you stay tuned. Uh, goodness with that there's only one thing left to say and that's simply this my name is frank r wilson my time's up i thank you for yours thanks for listening to what's the score